Welcome back. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired. You know, there's an expression that politics is like a transaction. Candidates will make a promise on what they will do for your vote, and the advocates who helped elect them, well, they keep the receipts. In the world of faith and politics, it's important to remember that influence comes not just from money and donations, but the ability to mobilize the base and influence the public discourse. We're going to take a look now at how faith-based organizations feel about the priorities and actions taken by President Biden in his first 100 days. National religion reporter Kelsey Dallas joins me. She's an editor at the Salt Lake City-based Desiree News. On April 30th, she published a lengthy feature detailing where President Biden has kept his promises and where he fell short. She joins me by phone from Salt Lake City. Kelsey Dallas. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to be back. How did you choose the actions to profile? I tried to remember what issues had gotten the most intense reaction from religious communities. So like most reporters, my inbox is regularly filling up with press releases. And if it's something significant, we're talking about 15 to 20 emails within minutes of each other saying, I love this or I hate this. And so I really tried to say, okay, so there's all these different policy moves, but which ones elicited the strongest reaction? And then I sort of cut myself off once the responses started to dwindle down. Kelsey, the statements and press releases you're reading, you're getting those from faith-based organizations for the most part, not individual clergy or houses of worship. Definitely. That's a great point. I think most of the releases I get are actually from organizations that are adjacent to denominations or actually aren't affiliated with a specific church. They're just a group of faith-based activists who care about a specific issue. So maybe one area where this is especially present is in immigration. There are a wide variety of faith groups that work very hard on immigration reform or relatedly on refugee resettlement and refugee policy advocacy. Let's start there. Can you walk us through President Biden's major actions on immigration policy? You know, cover the border, the wall, refugees, treatment of unaccompanied children. I mean, there is a whole list of policy actions and demands under that rubric of immigration. And he made many promises during the campaign. Absolutely. So on his very first day in office, President Biden got to work on immigration. He paused construction on the border wall. He paused certain deportations. And he also put forward his immigration reform proposal. He sent it over to Congress. And I think that faith groups were broadly supportive of the moves he was making. I think immigration was where President Trump sometimes got in trouble with even his strongest religious supporters that were very upset about family separation at the border, for example. What's been fascinating to watch is that President Biden started out on this this foot that many faith groups were supportive of, but quickly got into hot water as the situation at the southern border became more and more tense as we saw more people arriving and the Biden administration was continuing to keep people in what have, have been called inhumane conditions. And I think that there's just been this widespread sense that Biden has the right ideas in mind, has some good plans that he's discussing, but maybe hasn't moved fast enough or been aggressive enough. And that came to a head in mid-April when his administration announced that they weren't going to raise the refugee 
ceiling nearly as high as they promised. And in fact, in their initial announcement, said they weren't going to raise it this year at all. They were going to keep it at this low level put forward by Trump. The backlash from faith groups across the spectrum was so swift that they said, OK, OK, we'll reconsider. And this month they're supposed to announce a slightly elevated refugee ceiling for this year. Kelsey, where was that backlash coming from? You just said across the political spectrum. I just want to be clear. Did that include conservative voices? And whose voices were the loudest? Which organizations were publicly calling out President Biden for failing to reverse the Trump era decision? It was certainly all groups. But when you talk about the strongest, I think what was interesting was it was these refugee resettlement agencies that had been very aligned with the Biden administration's plans. And I think they felt betrayed by the announcement because they had been working closely with the Biden administration to say, how can we repair some of the damage done while Trump was in office and very quickly move to resettle large numbers and to pay attention to where the most dangerous situations are happening around the world and and help people get to the U.S. to a better life. And so they were talking about this as, as, like I said, a betrayal where Biden had met with them on the campaign, met with them in the early days of administration, said, "Okay, we're on track to do this. And they just felt blindsided by the idea that he was pulling back. How did the administration respond? It was only a couple hours later that there was this announcement from the administration that they would have further updates coming in May. Again, I don't believe that anyone expects the refugee sailing to be raised all the way to 125,000 was, I think, an original promise from Biden. But it will at least be somewhere in the middle, maybe around 65,000 refugees resettled this year. And I know that people are still not completely satisfied, but they are at least grateful that the administration responded to that backlash. And it really shows the power of religious voices in this administration and in politics in general. Were you surprised by that, by the ability of these faith-based groups to get a response so quickly from the administration? No, I think that the Biden administration has worked hard to build bridges to a wide variety of religious communities. So I think it made sense for them to take seriously the criticisms that were out there. One of the ideas that I highlighted in my article was that Biden has taken very seriously the work of religious groups on a wide variety of social issues, and he reestablished the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Partnerships to make sure that the government was trying to nurture church-state partnerships in a wide variety of areas of the law. And so I, I think it made sense for him to sort of regroup and say, whoa, I must have made a misstep. How can I fix this? Many of former President Trump's positions, frankly, fueled the multi-faith and interfaith coalitions that organized over the last four years. And a lot of folks point to the first executive order he issued as president. On the campaign trail, President Trump promised to ban Muslim migration, and his first executive order sought to ban Muslim nationals from Muslim-majority countries. After several revisions and being upheld by the Supreme Court, that ban remained in effect. On day one, though, President Biden, as he promised on his campaign trail, rescinded the executive order. What has been the response? Groups across the political spectrum were excited about that move because many faith groups had referred to it as a violation of religious freedom and felt that it was sending the wrong message about America. And so they were excited about Biden quickly acting. But I think that we can actually compare it pretty well to what's going on with immigration policy 
where faith groups are saying, well, we love that, but we'd like even more. Oh, thank you, Biden. But can you do this next? Where it's sort of like, we're so glad that this travel ban is not on the books anymore. But Biden, could you throw your support between passing something like the No Ban Act in Congress that says no future administration could put a similar travel ban in place? And so I was fascinated to really read and understand that as I was working on my article that religious groups are really expecting quite a lot from Biden and they're not going to rest with sort of, oh, great, you did the first thing. I'm so pleased. I'll never speak against you again. They really want to push him to just keep moving forward and going to the great links to protect faith communities around the world. Let's talk about the Equality Act. It's been introduced several times. It seems to be the closest now to passing. The LGBTQ community and faith-based advocates are pushing for the act because it will extend the 1964 Civil Rights Act to explicitly prevent discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. It originally passed the House in 2019, and then it's passed the House again just a couple months ago. And Biden has thrown his support behind it, which has strained his relationship with conservative religious leaders. Now, I know that they maybe would never have been the biggest fan of Biden because of his stance on other issues like abortion rights, but it's just been complicated for him to try to have relationships across the religious spectrum while also pushing hard to make these advances in the realm of LGBTQ rights. Mm. Kelsey, when you talk about conservative religious leaders, are you talking again about conservative religious leaders within a denomination? Or are you talking about religious political leaders who run organizations like the Family Research Council? Both, because I think that there is fear from groups like Family Research Council about how this would affect their activism and then the like social services organizations that they help support and are excited about. But you also see these leaders within denominations that are worried because, like I said, it could touch faith-based schools, which are tied into denominations. And then there's even fears out there about how it would affect churches, because sometimes churches run public-facing organizations like food pantries or homeless shelters. Supporters of the Equality Act said that a lot of those fears are overblown, but it doesn't change the fact that I think the conservative religious world in general is is on edge about this debate. If you're receiving federal funds uh, through your local government to, for example, run a food pantry Mm -hmm. for the community or a homeless shelter, what threat do people who are opposing the Equality Act, what what do they see happening here? So if you receive those government funds to operate this organization, like I said, a homeless shelter or a food pantry, uh, in general, you're expected to serve all who come to get that help because, again, it's money that's meant to help the entire community, not just members of your church, for example. But there's been this concern that if you want to take part in that type of public facing program, that it then gives the government to dive deeper into your activities. Now, supporters of the Equality Act said that that's not true, that there remains this important separation between church and state and that churches have a right to practice how they want and preach what they want. And that it really is just focused on that specific service activity. I've read the Equality Act. And so I I just want to say I am very skeptical of that criticism Because, again, the act does not speak to scrutinizing the religious behavior. It speaks to the use of federal dollars in public accommodations and giving services to the public on behalf of the government. It's like a partnership. It has nothing to do with the ideological or theological positions 
that would be uh, shared from a pulpit or religious service, you know, whether it's a mosque, a gurdwara, a temple, a church. So I am curious, when you hear those types of critiques, do you feel like those are rooted in the reading of the legislation or are those intended to just incite, mobilize and frankly energize the base to oppose it? It's probably more the latter, that it's just trying to quickly stir up uh, anger and stir up pushback against the Equality Act. However, in my stories, I've tried to get to this deeper concern about maybe what you'd call a slippery slope, that if you pass a legislation like this, it wouldn't take long for there to be additional policy passed down the road that just shove religious teachings against same-sex marriage farther and farther away from the public square, that it would just become more and more unpopular to believe those things. Kelsey, isn't that a separate issue? I mean, you're that's what you, sounds like what you're hearing is a fear about a shift in our culture not opposition to preventing discrimination. I mean, the Equality Act is specifically targeting the issue of people in the LGBTQ community being discriminated against, being fired, be, you know, from their jobs, being denied housing, being denied public accommodations at like a homeless shelter, being denied food at a food pantry. I mean, that is very, very precise and specific uh, that relates to addressing discrimination in this incredibly diverse country that we have. And frankly, when you talk about public opinion and attitudes in the broader culture, they're already there. What's been interesting to me is that as I interview folks from either more conservative religious denominations or from denominational branched organizations that do social service work, is that they're aware of sort of the reputation that they're getting in the public square. They're aware that they're more known for their attacks on the LGBT community than they are for their beliefs. And there's been efforts to address that. If you've paid attention to statements from various religious leaders, including the Catholic Church, they've been trying to include in their critique of the Equality Act statements in support of the gay community, of the transgender community, saying that we're all made in the image of God. And I think that they are aware that it's a very difficult line they're trying to walk. And so far, it's missing a lot of their potential audience, if that makes sense. Like they're struggling to get their message heard by everyday Americans, but they do have very strong support from Republican leaders in Congress. So I listened to, for example, the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the Equality Act and the Republican speakers who were there were saying the same things as conservative religious leaders and were sort of pressing all of these concerns about interference with churches, for example. Well, it's not new that Republican leaders would be echoing the messages of conservative religious groups, particularly those coming out of the religious right. Do you see a closer relationship now between Republican leadership and these conservative organizations? Yes, I think that they remain aligned as they were throughout the Trump era. And I think that it's just that the conservative religious world is is almost overlapping with the conservative political world. And so it's no surprise that we see these Republican leaders uh, sharing their messages in Congress and want to sort of talk about that regularly in their political work. During the Trump administration, one area where we did see some faith groups supporting and celebrating some of the positions was around the area of international religious persecution. 
Secretary Pompeo was speaking out more forcefully about the plight of the Uyghur population in China that has been systematically targeted, detained, tortured. So far, Biden's been working along with his State Department to continue to pressure religious persecutors around the world to change their act. And one of the ways they've done this was by sanctioning Chinese officials for their treatment of Muslims and other Turkish minority groups and to say that we're not going to let you off the hook for this, even though you were an important trade partner, for example. And so there were groups from across the political spectrum and across the religious spectrum who were saying thank you to the Biden administration for not just levying those sanctions, but for also talking about the Chinese government's acts in a human rights report that came out recently. Are you hearing that advocates are satisfied or are they pressing for more? Pressing for more, I think it's very similar to what I was saying with the repeal of the travel ban, where it said, "Okay, thanks for doing this, but could you also pass the no ban act? Could you also increase the refugee ceiling? Similar here is, okay, you've sanctioned these Chinese officials, but have you called the country to account in every conversation you've had with them? Have you made it a piece of ongoing trade negotiations? And have you brought this up with other countries that are on the U.S. Commission of International Religious Freedoms list of countries of particular concern? So there's always more that the White House could be doing. And I think that faith groups are just going to continue pushing, pushing, pushing until they see continued action. I'm talking with Kelsey Dallas, a national religion reporter with the Desiree News. On April 30th, President Biden marked 100 days in office. And Dallas, she wrote a feature detailing how faith groups responded to his legislative agenda and the actions he's taken over those 100 days. Now we turn to the latest infrastructure proposal that President Biden and Vice President Harris are touting as they travel across the country. Kelsey. How are faith-based advocates responding to President Biden's infrastructure proposal that includes lots of social investments to support, as he describes, working families? And that includes universal pre-K, support for daycare, and expansion of the earned income credit. What's going on? One that I find very fascinating and that we've been covering quite a bit at the Deseret News because of Senator Mitt Romney's work on it is a child tax credit or a variety of ways that the Biden administration is looking to potentially help families with maybe support for daycare or a paid family leave. And why I think that's fascinating is that There's been faith leaders and other types of conservative leaders who are saying, of course, we want families to feel supported. Of course, we want families to have the resources to continue having more kids. But we shouldn't put policies in place that make it as if both parents working is the norm. There's still this interest in having the option to have mom or dad, one of them be a stay at home parent. And I think there's frustration that maybe putting universal preschool or universal daycare in place makes it sound like we just all have to work. So I'm fascinated by that. Because I think that religious groups want something to be done, but there's going to be a lot of tension about what actually would help families the most. I think that it's just this concern that we're missing some parts of America by just saying that daycare is the answer. Is the proposal actually saying that daycare is the answer or is it saying that we need to have more access to affordable care options for children who are not school aged? It depends on who you ask. Certainly, I don't think I don't think the Biden administration would say daycare is the perfect option for every single family. Let's get everyone involved. But I think that that's how certain conservatives react to it out of just sort of fear of of the trends in the country today. 
When you talk about trends in the country, I'm curious, how are faith groups reacting to the fact that so many women have been forced out of the labor market because of the pandemic, the economic crisis, and frankly, the absence of affordable child care? I know that Biden introduced the American Families Plan relatively recently, so there's plenty of time for people to get heated about it, to start debating it. But I would really like to hear more religious voices speak out and say their own thoughts on what's the best for families or what they hope could be done for families, because this is a very complicated debate where people don't exactly line up conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat. And so those are the ones that I think create the most opportunities for some really interesting coalitions. And I feel the same about immigration, as we discussed earlier, that because it's just a very complex debate, I think we can shake some traditional coalitions up and say, OK, let's how do we work together? How do I form new partnerships? And so I'm hoping that faith groups remain open to partnering with all sorts of groups as they try to do what's best for families, what's best for immigrants, what's best for re- refugees. You know, I appreciate you bringing it back to immigration and the complexity of legislating and how many coalition advocates are out there seeking to influence public policy on behalf of people of faith. Boy, there are a lot of groups and lots of faith-based advocacy groups that are trying to do just that. And I imagine a lot of people have no idea how many groups are trying to speak on their behalf, which is the reason why I was really happy to have you on and appreciate your story I want to shift for a moment to the White House and who they listen to. And it's related, right? The White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships is kind of an institution that is charged with different things under different administrations. What do you see happening in the Biden administration? Well, I believe that the Trump administration took a while to reestablish that office. Again, it's been present since the Bush era, but it has ebbs and wanes from time to time because of the steps the administration has to take to actually staff it. And I think that was the issue during the Trump administration is that they said we're supportive of this work, but then took forever to actually appoint a leader. And so the concern there was that there were less formal channels for faith groups to reach out to the administration and say, here's what we're seeing. Here's what we'd like to do. How can you assist us? It was just sort of like there wasn't an obvious phone number to call. There wasn't an obvious email to send. And so I think the Biden administration worked very quickly to put these more formal structures in place so that you know, hey, Melissa Rogers can help me. Hey, her staff in other federal agencies can help me and they can start convening conversations. And she recently spoke to that at a conference I attended where she was saying that there's just listening sessions happening on all sorts of issues. And so the Biden administration has just been a little bit more formal in the way that it's approached church-state partnerships. And I think that there are pros and cons to each approach, but I think that a lot of religious groups, for what it's worth, are just used to working in a more formal system and so are relieved uh, with the approach the Biden administration has taken. Mm. Kelsey, I'd be remiss not to bring up that hate crimes continue to be on the rise, the concerns about anti-Asian violence and violence targeting houses of worship. You know, it's Ramadan, as you well are aware, and a lot of folks are in limited places gathering at their mosques, including at night. And I know many community leaders have raised concerns about security. Where do you see the Biden administration on this question of keeping houses of worship, gurdwaras, temples, mosques, churches safe, particularly as hate-motivated violence continues to rise? I think the celebrations of Ramadan call to mind, as you mentioned, some of the struggles of the Muslim community while Trump was in office. And they, like members of other minority groups in the U.S., have been victims of some religiously motivated violence. 
maybe not the perpetrator's religion caused it, but the victim's religion was part of what was motivating that violent act. And so I have heard that the Biden administration is very serious about addressing safety concerns when it comes to religion and is trying to expand nonprofit security grants for houses of worship, but also listen to everyday people of faith about what they're afraid of, why they're nervous about walking down the street with a turban on or with a hijab on. And so I think that they are working very hard to make sure that all members of the religious community in the U.S. feel safe to live out their faith in public and are going to continue to work on that in the coming months. Before we wrap up, I just want to ask, Kelsey, is there anything you want to circle back to or bring up that we haven't yet touched? I do want to touch on one more thing about that equality debate and LGBTQ rights. Uh, Right now, the bill is sitting in the Senate. As I said, there was a Judiciary Committee hearing, but the question is, what needs to change or or what needs to happen in the country for that bill to get enough votes to overcome the Senate filibuster? So that would be 60 votes that would need to bring in some Republicans. And I think the question is whether some conservative faith groups would be happy if the Equality Act just adjusted some of its uh, some of its effect on religious freedom law and just said, hey, we're going to protect the gay community, but we're also going to allow faith groups to challenge this in court in in moments where they feel pressure on them. And so I'm just fascinated to follow that. Are we actually going to see the Senate pick that up? And will Biden end up sort of agreeing with some of those religious freedom policy adjustments so that he can continue to build bridges with more conservative people of faith? I've told people before that although I define myself as someone who covers religious freedom, that would mean many different things to many different people because in the same story, in stories reacting to a Supreme Court case, for example, you would have one group saying this is horrible for religious freedom and another group saying this is the most important thing done to protect religious freedom. And it's a fascinating debate and I encourage people to be following this topic because I I never knew that this topic could get even hotter, but it has. And we're going to have more Supreme Court rulings coming this summer that will just turn the temperature up even higher. Kelsey Dallas, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Take good care. Kelsey Dallas covers religion and politics for the Desiree News and serves as deputy editor of the In-Depth team. She holds a master's degree in religion from Yale Divinity School and lives with her family in Salt Lake City, Utah. That's all for this week. A special thanks to our producer, Kevin McCarthy, our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. I have a quick update about our book club. We are moving the date. It is now Thursday, May 27th, which gives you even more time to decide to join us, which I hope you will. It's going to be live on Zoom to RSVP, get information, or ask any questions, email lila at lila at interfaithradio.org. This month, we're reading Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists by Chen Zing Han. Friends, before we go, I just want to say a quick word about what's happening in India. Each and every morning, I wake up to look for updates from family members. And to say that the situation there is dire would be an understatement. If you can get the COVID-19 vaccine, please don't refuse. Please don't hesitate. Please don't delay. Make every effort you can to get vaccinated, to get your loved ones vaccinated. Talk to those who are hesitating. Reach out and ask why. 
share information from knowledgeable and trusted resources. Our families are clinging to the hope that we will all pull together as human beings to do what's right, to use the knowledge and the science that we have to take steps to protect ourselves and to protect our neighbors. And that includes getting vaccinated. Wherever you are, I hope you're well. I hope you stay connected. And I really hope you get vaccinated. I hope to see you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan.